our kids' corner this morning. I'm going to get together in the grass out in front of where they are. But a moment, uh, a, a, a little mention here, I've goofed. Our sermon title this morning is uh, The Blessings of a Righteous Nation, Not a Righteous Man. Otherwise, I've got to develop a whole other sermon here. So, <laughs> so, so kids, um, you know, this week we're going to celebrate our country's birthday. And actually, our country has kind of a birth certificate. Maybe you've heard of this. It's called the Declaration of Independence, right? It's actually the first document that mentions the United States by name, right? But a birth certificate is kind of an interesting thing. And I brought some old ones of these along to show you. This, this one actually... It's in German, so you probably can't even, and, and the letters are hard to read. But actually, this is kind of cool, because if you understood what it says, it says, born this day, Katrina Bittenbender, right? She is born in the year of our, in the year of Christ, rather, born 1804, the 2nd of July, right? So how about that? Almost 220 years ago today, right? By the way, um, I figured only to be fair and in deference to our Lutheran guests here, this would be a Reformed Church birth certificate and baptism document, and this would be a Lutheran Church birth certificate and <laughs> um, a baptism certificate. Anyway, it's kind of to note you know, we, we pay attention to important days, right? Um, in fact, we even pay attention to today when our dog is born. <laughs> Henry's pedigree, right? So, anyway, um, if you've never read it, the Declaration of Independence is a fascinating document in addition to being a birth certificate. And I want to focus in on the second paragraph of what it says, because it says this that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal by their creator, by God. And God creates men with specific rights, and among those rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that, anyway, as a birth certificate, this kind of lays out a claim for the country that it's trying to create, right? A country that relies on God, and claims that human freedom is a gift from him, and it tends, and that that is our natural state. So anyway, we declared independence, but then what do we do? See, this is where it gets kind of tricky, right? Because now we need to form our own country. And with it, we need to form a constitution that is a government, right? And make our, begin making our own laws. And that's what I want to focus in on today, because law is kind of where righteousness, it's kind of what it's all about, right? So, but if we're free, why do we even need rules? Why do we need laws? Isn't freedom kind of a lack of law? I'll give you a hint. This is one of Pastor Vaughn's trick questions again, because actually it turns out that freedom needs more rules than the lack of freedom. You know, if you just can't do anything anyway, it's easy to say, nope. And you'll find this at home with mom and dad, too. You know, 
guess what? When you get more privileges, mom and dad are going to put more responsibilities with those privileges. Yes, you can borrow the keys to the car, but, you know, this is how you're going to use it. This is what it's going to return. This is, you're going to put gas in the gas tank, right? You know? <laughs> so, anyway, I also want to talk about one other thing with you, and then I'll let you go. And it goes kind of like this. If the crux of the law is what Jesus says it is, that is, Jesus says that all law hinges on the idea that we should love each other, that's what the basis of law is, right? Why not just make a law that says, love each other? Does that sound like something that would work real well? You know, you know, pick the kid at school that you don't really like, but there's a law, you gotta love that kid. How's that gonna work? Not very well, thank you. And, and this is what makes law kind of a hard thing. So bear these things in mind while I'm talking to the big people today, right? And pay attention, because I've got another question for you coming later in my message, all right? All right. So, so. Lord, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You know, um, let me get away from that speaker there so that I can talk here. Love is a heart issue. And righteousness is also a heart issue. If righteousness is following the law, if it's doing what love demands, well, then it's a heart issue. If Jesus is correct, the two of these are the same thing. And as I was trying to demonstrate with the kids, the law is a bad instrument to actually change the heart. I mean, we could pass a law that says love each other, but there would be people that we would find rather low on the love list, unfortunately, and probably would do a very bad job at following that rule. So it seems to me if we want to build a good country, we need to do it one heart at a time. So now, maybe you've heard, and maybe you've lived long enough to remember, 60 years ago, our schools taught, you know, Bibles, taught, taught students about the Bible and about how to pray. There was prayer in school. And I came along after that, but not so long after that that all of my teachers weren't still locked in that. And I want to tell you one thing that I remember that I really appreciated growing up. And I think that, you know, I would miss if I were in today's generation. Um, and it was this. We had a teacher that said, you know, I'm old anyway, and I'm not going to change. If they want to get rid of me for this, let them do it. But in my class, we pray. And every morning that teacher picked a student or two to walk around the classroom and pray for the other kids in there. And I want to tell you, it's really something. 
when the kid that you did battle with on the playground the day before puts his hand on your shoulder and says, Lord, I pray that Vaughn and I can get along today, that we have a better day, and then just moves on. I think we miss something here without that. And, and certainly, you know, we advocate for our kids to get lessons in math and science and reading, and rightfully so. But how much more important the Bible? Now, having said all of that, I'm not sure I advocate bringing that back into the public school. I'm not sure that they're the place for it. And I'm not sure that I trust them to do the job that I'd like to see done. So parents, whether or not there's prayer in school, we need to take the initiative with our kids' moral education, and we need to teach by example, not merely telling our kids that, hey, this is important, but showing it in our daily lives. The Bible maintains that governments are established to punish evil, that is, to deal with crime and to wage war. <clears throat> Although no Bible verse shows up in the United States Constitution, during the Constitutional Convention that produced it, the Bible and its texts were the most quoted books. And Adams and Madison would go out of the convention wondering if they'd included enough Deuteronomy in their commentary about the new government. Madison maintained that government is necessary because man, mankind is flawed. And Adams would say that the proposed government is only adequate for a religious people, the kind that would control themselves. Freedom, as it turns out, requires more laws than tyranny, as my driving example illustrated. But no amount of legislation can compel people beyond their ability to control themselves. If it were so, we could simply make a law that says don't kill other people, for example, and no one would do it. But what Madison and Adams and the Bible all agree on is that there's a need for a balance between freedom and government force that's necessary because human experience shows that human self-control often fails. And these failures are from the heart. But what are we to do? How do we teach people to avoid offense today, that is, the seed of sin, when offense gives them credo. Now, an example here, I think divorce is a painful and awful thing. It hurts the people involved, it destroys the families of many children. I'd like to see it never happen. For that matter, I'd like it to be non-existent. But at the same time, I don't want a law eliminating the possibility. I don't want that because I want to know that my own wife, Lisa, stays with me not because she needs to, but rather because she wants to. This is the freedom, that the ultimate freedom, and the ultimate meaning in human relationship and what gives it value. Unlike many of our experiences with school, your attendance at church today is valuable because you want to be here. 
and you'll get more out of it for that reason. It's likely to result in good fruit in your lives and those around you because you desire it. And knowing that those around you, I'm sorry, then <clears throat> this is where the blessing of righteousness comes from, actually. You see, it's the removal of fear. It's the knowing that those around you are here for you because they want to be. They will act rightly because they want to do it. Government answers, the law that is, leaves little room for the heart in these heart conditions. That is, for the sort of meaning and value and the want to, it leaves no room for self-sufficiency and being truly blessed or being truly a blessing to others. This is what Jesus' challenge was, after all. It wasn't just to follow the law, but it was to put the heart of the law in our heart, that is, to love one another. Jesus actually criticized the Pharisees who were great at following the law, but they didn't love. So, you know, what is this love then that I'm speaking? Well, it is basically just wanting the best for other people. You know, and this was the crux of my way too long message last week, and I'm trying to keep it a little slimmer today for that reason. So, <clears throat> love is about doing what's right. It's doing the good thing for other people. Now, I know I've been told a time or two about what my own good is, and usually I didn't like what followed. Um, speaking of school, I had a principal one day that told me that I needed a spanking for my own good. And uh, I, I seem to recall telling the guy that I don't think my father would appreciate that. And he picked up the telephone and called my father and said, I have your son here in the office and he needs a spanking. Are you going to come and do it or can I? That wasn't exactly how I envisioned that going down. But uh, anyway, that story aside, we are to act in others' best interests. And if we never accepted Christianity, or as our country moves away from Christianity, the Bible's warning is basically that the brokenness that we experience uses out into the social sphere and the public square. How can we love as Christ loves if he isn't part of our reality? What would, we, what would give us certainty to the meaning and purpose and, and even the eternal need uh, beyond ourselves without faith? How can we put others ahead of our own needs and our own desires when our needs and desires are insatiable? From what source would we draw our love that we would still be able to give it through, through our own struggles? Not to mention, how would we ever love, that is, act for the good of others, if we didn't know what that was? And without God, how do we even define good? So I have one other story here, and it's a question for the kids, as promised here. Now, kids, acting on the good for the good of others can be a real challenge, especially when others around you are doing the wrong thing. 
How many kids out there think this? If you have a friend that's behaving badly, doing something dangerous or risky, are you a bad person to inform their parents? What do you think? I see some no's. I like that because that's the right answer. I have another story from my own childhood on this. At 12, I was a patrol leader in a Boy Scout troop, and our troop went for a bike hike around town, and actually we went 20 miles, so it was quite an extensive trip, and we hit this little country store. And I didn't realize this until we got out of the place and pedaled away, but one of the kids in my patrol stole a bottle of Coke from the store. Well, we thought we got away with that and pedaled on, but it turned out that the storekeep saw it and called our scoutmaster. And I got a lecture from the scoutmaster, and I first tried this argument, well, I didn't do it, and I didn't know that it happened. But the lecture went something like this. You are in a position of leadership, and if you want to keep that position, I am going to get a call from the storekeep that says that you, the boy, and his father went back there and made it right. You know, that was an awful tough lesson. But it is important. How can we say that we love other people and yet turn a blind eye while they go down this such a bad road? And now stealing a Coke may not be the greatest of all sins, of course. But how many are going to, going to seek help for the friend or demand that they stop? when they're doing more dangerous activity. We need to hold each other accountable. It's part of love. I can't watch silently as a friend goes astray. Love demands that I get involved. And that's what good is. That's what righteousness is. It's getting involved in people's lives. Being involved, loving people at a heart-to-heart -heart level. And through this, blessing flows. And this is where I really want to focus on. What does it mean to, when, when we hear that God blesses the righteous? And, you know, we have in the back of our mind this idea that, you know, God kind of steers divinely intended good things. That that's what a blessing is. But really, the, ble the word blessing in in Bible the word to be blessed is to be baruched. And, and basically, it means this. It means that fear is removed or peace is established. You see, if we take care of each other, we eliminate the fear that our needs won't be met. And as a result of this lack of fear, you know, there's increased joy. To bless someone is to remove their fears, but to bless God is then to honor him with the joy we have in that blessing. And blessing is a two-way street. As I meet your needs, you're blessed. But as you're, you're thankful for that blessing, I'm blessed because I've had the opportunity to be used to provide it. 
Now, the blessings that are enumerated in our reading in Deuteronomy 28, prosperity, wealth, liberty, might, freedom, you know, these, I think, are things that naturally flow when we live as we ought to live, and that is righteously, and take care of one another in love. Now, I am by no means claiming a perfect America here. You know, and there will be problems with every human society that ever comes along. Just as, just that the problems America faces, and in fact that the world faces, need to be dealt with one heart at a time. That is the crux of my message today. Our country is improved as I do battle within myself. I have the only heart that I can be responsible for. So I need to encourage myself and those around me to do battle with their own demons, their own disbelief, their own doubt. That heart is the site of blessing. It's from there where our fear is removed. By contrast, the nation without God is said to be, be cursed. That's in the other half of Deuteronomy and also in the reading from Jeremiah. But what does this curse, this arur, look like? You know, again, we tend to think in our Western mind of a curse as kind of a divinely imposed misfortune, a God-sent disaster, or God at least withholding intervention when he couldn't intervene and, and offer protection from it. But arur is really just the opposite of baruch. In other words, it's living in fear. The curse is the idea that you alone have to go and do it. You've got to go and grab it and do it, or it'll be snatched away from you. And it's a perpetual power struggle to try and get control in life. Such a nation then destroys prosperity and freedom now, although the hearts of Americans, and, and, and I have met Americans of all sorts, and, and <clears throat> I would tell you that I believe that we are a blessed country from the people that I have met in it. The modern criticism, though, of the United States is that we're not a righteous land, that we've never been, that we haven't dealt with our fellow man in love, and that our prosperity and might have come at too great a cost and benefited too few. Just below the surface of these claims, of course, is that freedom doesn't really work. And through the 20th century, one can find many examples of ideas on how to create a modern-day utopia. The Soviet Union or other communist states the Third Reich, which actually developed somewhat out of the eugenics movement here in the U.S., which was also an attempt to make an American utopia. But we have perhaps, and always will, be led away from God, you know, uh, that is, toward dependence on human ideas. But these ideas that lead down this road to these utopias are almost always rooted in human fears 
the fear that we will die or some other nasty harm will befall us. But is this not the error that I'm talking about, the, the curse that I'm talking about? Their ideas about how we need to change society, and they never focus on the individual, let alone his heart. The individual is just a cog, almost meaningless in the grand scheme. But that's not how God views us. In a land that falls deeper into the grasp of this curse, greater control is needed. And as these fears take hold, the people become willing to sacrifice more and more so that those fears can go away. But I wonder, are these fears at their core, what are they if they're not this curse? They're, they're a curse causing us to miss the best that life is. Even that we have prospered and we've, be, we've become filled with fear here in our own country. In the past century, we've literally lifted billions out of abject poverty, not just here, but around the world. The West lives in unprecedented safety, unprecedented health and comfort. Life expectancy has increased by more than 70% in the last hundred years. There's no longer a cold war, but yet our kids live in abject fear. Their fear of strangers, disease, crime, even the environment is going to kill them, and so on. And tacitly, the message is that each of these is a fear that the adults around them don't care enough to do a thing about it. You know, a number of years ago, the author of Jurassic Park, Michael Creighton, commented on this condition and he says that the West has fallen into a delusion almost akin to the witchcraft scare of the Middle Ages. Lord, we need a return to you in a big way. Our kids need a return. Lord, let our children live in blessing, not fear. As I conclude today, as I remember America on her birthday, I ask that we be reminded of the blessings of freedom. Let us be reminded that good citizenship in this country requires righteousness, which requires a connection to God, and that it grows one heart at a time. Let us commit to connecting with God and be a conduit for love in our country and the world around.